Hey guys, it's me, P. And me, S. And you're listening to the Girl on Girl podcast. But it's not what you think. But also, it's kind of what you think. Okay, here's the deal. My name is Persis. I'm queer, Indian, femme, and a little over five feet tall. And my name is Sarah. I'm straight, white, cis, and a proud ginger. Every episode, we're going to talk about sexuality from a queer perspective, from a straight perspective, and what it means to find the fluidity between the two. We're going to talk about taboos, labels, dating, awkward moments, pop culture icons. We're also going to talk safe sex, self-discovery, discrimination, and what it means to be a queer minority. Persis. Abraham. Hey, Sarah. You say you want to lose control. Come over here. I got something to show you. Sexy lady. Thank you. <laughs> I don't think that's the right part, but... It is. Oh. I'd rather see you bear your soul. If you think it's so hot, baby, show me what you got. Mm. Mm. <laughs> that's my contribution. I'd be doing that in the background while you sing. It's like, <laughs> imagine uh, me against the music, but Persis and Sarah version. Persis and Sarah against the music? Persis and Sarah against the music, yes. What a great title. Who would win, us or the music? The music. You think? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Speaking of music, I went last night to see a live band play. It wasn't like a like a band you bought tickets to see play. It was like a bar where a live band was playing like hits, cover, a cover band. And we had the best time. And in Vancouver right now, y'all, dancing is allowed. It's like Footloose, Kevin Bacon, just living his best life. That was me last night because we can now dance on a dance floor with no masks. It was really exciting. Obviously, we all had to be vaccinated to get in, but we had a great time and we just like celebrated life. I love it. And... It was really fun and extremely cathartic to realize that I hadn't experienced that feeling of dancing in a crowd in over two years. And purse, we love dancing in a crowd. That's where you and I get spiritual, I think. It's my happy place. There is something, too, about a cover band singing the hits. It, it just yeah. hits different. I love yeah. it. Yeah, and this bar, the band would play a set, and then they'd take a break. And in the break, obviously, a DJ would start playing. And the DJ was great. Like, the DJ was playing old school hits, all my Y2K bops that I love, and, like, mixing them really cool. Like, it was just a great vibe. Everyone was so happy, having a good time. But I wanted to tell you about this girl who I think was maybe trying to hit on me. It's funny to be back in that type of bar situation where people are like kind of scoping out everyone to see who's cute. Mm -hmm. And just we've talked so much on this pod about like femme lesbian struggles basically. And like but sometimes it's just hard when you're queer, I feel, to like go out into a bar and you see someone that you think is cute and you're like, how do I figure out if they're into it or not? You know yes, what I mean? For sure. And we've talked about just being like very open and obvious, you know, being like, hey, can I buy you a drink? Like, you're cute kind of thing. You tell me if you think she was hitting on me or not. I was sitting at a table with my friends. 
We were all dancing. I was just like sitting on one of the stools taking a little break. The stool was like placed against like a pillar. So I was like leaning against the pillar. And then all of a sudden I like looked to my right and this girl was like also leaning against the pillar, but I didn't realize she was. And as soon as I looked over, she was like, hey. And I was like, oh, hey. She was just kind of like dancing alone. And she, she was acting like a little weird. And I was like, are you, do you need to like get by me or something? And she was like, oh no, uh, no, I'm just like looking at my friends. Ha <laughs> ha. Like she was just being a little like awkward and tripping over her words. And I was like, okay. Oh my God, Sarah. <laughs> I think we were talking about like how great it was to dance or something like that. And then I thought she had, like, I was half talking to my friends, half talking to her. So I thought she had, like, left. And then all of a sudden in my ear, I hear, like, do you have a boyfriend? Stop. (laughs) Sarah, she was hitting on you. And I was like, no, I don't. Do you? And she was like, no. And I was like, oh, cool. (laughs) That is so funny. That was it. And then she kind of stayed there a little bit more, like, bopping around to the music. And then at one point... If I remember correctly, I think she was just like, okay, nice talking to you kind of thing. And then like ran away back to her friends. <laughs> okay. I have, I have mixed thoughts. What do you think? Originally, when she, she, she asked you, like, do you have a boyfriend? Okay. I'm like, is she trying to figure out if you're gay or not? Does she just want to know if you're single because she's into you? It could be either one of those. Mm-hmm. And then I'm surprised like nothing else came out of that. Because then that could just be very friendly. Like, oh, we're just chilling. You, you have a boyfriend? No, you? No. And then <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's why I was like, as soon as she asked, do you have a boyfriend? I was like, that's super random. We literally have said two words to each other on a dance floor. I was like, oh, I wonder if she's like hitting on me. But then I didn't say like, no, but I want one or something like that. I just said, no, do you? And she was like, no. So it was kind of was the perfect scenario for her to be like, to make a move, I guess. You know, if I agree. I didn't give her any indication that I was straight or anything like that, but she just like squirreled away. <laughs> so yeah, maybe she was just being super friendly. I thought thought it was interesting that like her friends were over there, but she was just like leaning against this pillar beside me, like by herself. Totally. Anyway, girl, if you're listening, I don't know your name, but welcome to Girl on Girl podcast, where Sarah brings girl. in the straight perspective and I bring in the gay perspective. <laughs> How many more times can we say it? The point of the story isn't like, isn't even like, was she trying to hit on me or was she not? It it just more reminded me of like, we're going back into into like these crowded situations now. Restrictions are starting to lift. This summer is probably going to be a lot of like <laughs> people flirting with each other in bars. You know what I mean? Yes. And just to remind y'all, like if you are going up to someone at a bar and you want to find out if they are queer or you just think they're cute, whatever it is, like, don't be afraid to, like, be open about what you're curious about and what you're asking. Like, don't be afraid to be, like, after you ask if they have a boyfriend, next step, you know, is, like, are you into girls or can I buy you a drink? Like, you're really cute, whatever, you know? I agree. I don't know if that's what she was trying to do. But if she was, who knows? What if I was into girls? And then we could have had a beautiful romance. I agree. I always think like the more direct, the better, especially when you are in a bar environment, because you're right. People are going to be flirting up a storm. I mean, like going out in the city, it is, it is flirting central when you're out there. So the more direct, the better. And if someone's not into you, they'll just say, sorry, I'm not interested. And yeah, it's going to suck a little bit, but you just move on. Just be direct. That's my advice. 
Yeah, and it's the same thing for if you're straight. If you're listening to this and you're straight, same thing, right? Be direct if you're going up to someone and you think they're cute. Be like, you're cute. You know what I mean? I would much rather someone be direct with me and or me be direct with them than kind of like skirt around it and then squirrel away and never know like what Oof. the answer to your question was. Agreed. But it was funny. It's hot when people are confident too. If they, oh, yeah. If they literally go like, you're cute. I'm like. It is. Moi? Confidence is sexy. It's very sexy. Um, Purse, we have a really cool guest on the pod today. Sarah and I just want to pinch ourselves because we always end up getting such incredible guests on here. I don't even know how, but it happens and we're so grateful. Yeah, and just like great conversations. Our guest today is named Ali Patel and it's really exciting because Ali is the first queer South Asian assigned female at birth guest that we've had on the pod. And purse you, in case you didn't know. I didn't know. Um, yeah, I'm just telling you for your information, Persis, you are queer and Indian. And you're a woman. Yes. God, are you a woman? <laughs> oh, man. I feel like a woman. Oof. Who allows us to do this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you guys still listen. Ali is just a trailblazer badass. They are an LGBTQ plus scholar, activist, writer, influencer. They have literally made Canadian history on several accounts. Like they have been the first queer South Asian woman to do so many things um, because that community is, you know, there's not a lot of visibility in that community and it is, it does seem quite small. So Ali's whole purpose and their life goal is to like expand that community and create a lot more exposure and awareness. By age 23, Ali had pioneered Canadian research on queer South Asian women's issues in the diaspora. They also founded the Queer South Asian Women's Network, which is the first of its kind. It's a nonprofit organization that basically is a safe space community for queer South Asian women to come together and learn and educate themselves and meet each other and just like connect. And in 2020, Ali was also the first South Asian speaker to ever speak at Pride Toronto's Dyke March. It's incredible. Honestly, you'll, you guys will hear all of this in the conversation, but we talked to Ali so much about what it means to be South Asian and queer. Ali had a very different upbringing compared to me, I would say, in terms of um, their relationship with their parents compared to mine. So it was really, really cool to see that side. I really just want to give Allie props for being so strong and sticking to themselves and owning themselves because clearly you can see that this is impacting so many people and someone like me as well. I mean, as much as Allie and I had different upbringings and stories, I also related to a lot of things that they were saying with just being South Asian. I think you are both proof that like there isn't one single South Asian queer story. Like you're, you can both be South Asian and your experiences can be very different. And that's kind of like the beauty of the Queer South Asian Women's Network that Ali created because it's like bringing all these different experiences together to show that like whatever your experience is, it's okay. Yeah, 100%. And we all need to learn more about each other's experiences. Not everything is going to be the same. Otherwise, it would be very boring and life wouldn't be the way it is. You know? You know what I'm saying? Girl, I would be bored. And also, I just feel like when people think of the South Asian culture, I feel like there definitely is this idea that, you know, 
there's a lot of homophobia or uh, strict parents or like, which I think in a lot of ways is true. And we talk about this with Ali. Like we talk very candidly about South Asian culture and how Ali feels it's damaging or not damaging. But I just think it's nice to like acknowledge that that's not always the case. And you're proof of that. And I think a lot of other women in this Queer South Asian Women's Network as well are. Yes. Couldn't have said it better myself, Sarah Sarah. Ali is also based in Toronto. They're gender fluid. Their background is Indo-African Gujarati, which we talk about Gujarati culture and what that means to Ali. And um, we learn a little bit more about it. They are doing a ton of research. They're an academic and they're just trying to trailblaze a path forward for the queer South Asian community. They absolutely are, and they're going to keep doing it. We're so excited for you guys to listen to this episode with Ali Patel. Ali, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and I'll be suing you for suing you. Oh, my God. I'm not going to sue you. Please don't sue our guests. That's all I ask you. Like, please, come on. You're embarrassing me. It's really tempting. What I meant to say is I'll be seeing you for drinks at Cruise and Tango's. I'll Be Seeing You by Billie Holiday plays softly in the background. Also, guys, just before we jump into this conversation, we have to give a trigger warning for depression, anxiety, suicide, and trauma. So if you are not in a headspace to engage in a conversation about any of those topics, maybe step away from this podcast for a little bit and come back if you want to listen later. Ali's story is really important and it's one that needs to be heard, but it also is, you know, um, it's heavy. As well so we just yes. want to be super transparent about that and um at the same time we are really excited for you guys to to join in this conversation with us hello hi look at your necklace Thank you it's beautiful it's so pretty thank you so much it's so old i feel like it's one of those necklaces that i like have been wearing since high school and I'm like this is my staple now just like chunky pearls cute yeah well welcome to our podcast we're so grateful that you agreed to chat with us we're super stoked to talk to you for like a million reasons but I would say number one reason is because we haven't had a queer South Asian girl on the show yet which is nuts because my partner in crime here, Persis, is a queer South Asian girl. Mm-hmm. We've talked to queer South Asian men. We've talked about being queer and South Asian a ton, obviously, because that's Persis's whole life experience. But this is the very first time we're having a guest on to talk about it. And as we know, you are, you know, pretty used to being the first in a lot of situations in your life and your career. So that probably doesn't come as a surprise to you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This is super exciting and I'm really honored to be here and very excited for all the topics that we have to discuss today. And for anyone who hasn't heard of you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So yes, hi, my name is Ali, my pronouns are they, them. I am a gay Gujarati gender fluid individual and I do a lot of things. I've been doing LGBTQ plus activism for the past eight years. I started off in the Toronto region and moving forward from there, I just kind of expanded globally. So I pioneered Canadian and North American research actually on queer South Asian women. I look at the culturally unique forms of discrimination that queer South Asian women experience in LGBTQ plus communities. I also uh, solely founded the Queer South Asian Women's Network, which is the first South Asian queer women's organization in North America, and we are thriving. 
I also co-founded the Queer Gujarati Parivar, which is an online collective for queer Gujarati people. And what else do you do? I do so many things. I'm also a <laughs> diversity and inclusion consultant and speaker. So I've been speaking at uh, school. I started off speaking at schools in 2015, and now I speak at larger corporations and service providers to just talk about all sorts of things. So like queer association, cultural competency to power and privilege and all those fun, fun things. And yeah, and I have a master's in sociology and I just, I just do a lot of fun things. I'm really big on community engagement. I, I love doing like organizing community events and like, I just, my core philosophy is lead with love. So it just, everything love I do that. from a place of passion. Yeah. Wow. So there's nothing you don't do basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> You're just wearing all the hats, just doing the damn thing. I love that. Honestly, I kind of want to start from the beginning with you, though. Did you have a moment when you realized you were gay or when you first liked women? I always love to know what people's moments were because I definitely had a few. Okay, what are the boundaries on this show? Like, is there anything, is there such thing as TMI? No. No, no such thing as TMI on this show. Okay, no. incredible. Okay, so I, in the fifth grade, was really into those, like, online dress-up games, like, um, as a kid, I just like to like dress up Barbies. Um, one of the websites was just like very explicit. And I was like, I like to undress this more than I like to dress her. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and I think that was honestly my first. And I was like, I just didn't really think anything of it. I thought it was like, I mean, I know for a fact that it's natural to be queer, like nothing about it. But as I, I don't think that I was told that it was a stigmatized thing until um, actually later in the fifth grade when another kid called me a lesbian and I didn't know what it meant. So I went, I went home and I asked my family at the dinner table. My dad was like, that's a bad word. Don't say it. It was interesting wow. because even, so that's kind of what my association was. And then in grade nine, um, one of my friends just told me that she liked me and that she wanted to date me. And I remember telling her, I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm straight. Cause isn't, aren't like most people, I don't know, I feel like I was just told I was straight, but the next day, I was like, you know what, I do want to do this, like, I do really like you, Well, we dated with no labels, and then as soon as other kids started finding out, and they were like, oh, are you a lesbian, that's when my brain was like, oh my god, dating another woman makes me a lesbian, <laughs> like, Interesting. I was so naive, and then I freaked out, but if nobody had labeled me, I would have been living my best life, just as, like, a queer person, I just, it was once the labels kind of came on, so definitely that and then I tried doing the whole dating men thing again so it's kind of that that was like my, my first I would say between fifth and ninth grade and then it was just a process of like eliminating men and confirming that I really <laughs> just not working and it's true it's a process you start to like eliminate them one by one and then you're like okay I think I just want to be with women yeah like I think it was a lot of like okay I know I like women but to what extent do I not like men <laughs> Right, right. Like comparing them. I definitely like watched persons go through that exact same process. Yes. It was like an eclipse, like her dating female, like women experience just slowly overshadowed the dating men and there were fewer men and more women. And then eventually it was just like, I'm, I'm just here for the girls. It's gals only over here. <laughs> yes. So how long have you two known each other? Oh my oh God. God. A decade now. Yeah. Yep. So we met in college and then we started living together in Toronto and we fell in love. One of the reasons why we started the podcast in the first place was because like I, over the course of seven years living together, watched Persis like navigate her sexuality from like A to Z really like starting as identifying as bi. Like I was there when she first came out as bi and then I was there when she came out as gay 
and like watching that whole progression happen and it's still a progression and it's still happening. I was learning so much about my sexuality from watching that and from like being with her as she was growing. And so it kind of made us realize like it doesn't matter if you are queer or not. Like we can all learn so much about our own sexuality and our own identities from like hearing each other's stories and watching them unfold. So we've been through a lot together. Oh, that's so adorable. I yeah, totally. And I love that you also brought up that it felt so natural for you to just date your friend in grade nine. But then the moment we start like labeling people and putting them in boxes, it's like a whole scary thing we have to navigate. I never thought of it that way. Like your natural instinct was like, this feels good to me. So I want to date my friend. Yeah. Yeah. I found that really interesting. More The more I think about it too and analyze kind of what was happening for me because it, like I had a really close friend in grade, I think grade eight, who I'm no, no longer friends with, but I just remember her being so open about like gayness. And so I knew that it was like, you know, being gay is fine. Like I didn't have any of that like internalized queer phobia, uh, which I feel like a lot of people kind of like go through. But um, I also just didn't really other than that one experience in grade five, talk about it to my family, but I knew that they wouldn't be okay with it because of that experience. So mm. that's like, that was the thing where I was like, this is a natural instinct. I'm dating this woman. But as soon as it gets labeled and other people are starting to make me feel like judged for it, I feel like I'm doing something bad. And it's, it was a lot of like, oh, my parents can't find out. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, just growing up being a South Asian girl, South Asian daughter, already kind of living that of a life of like, well, I'm secretly dating these men anyways in school. So I'm just, this right. just falls under the umbrella of secretly dating. That You almost had like a little bit of a leg up because you were like, I'm already keeping my entire dating life secret. When we talk about, oh, I think when people come to me for, younger crews come to me for advice, I'm like, what do I do in South Asian families for coming out? Like, I feel like I need to be telling them my truth. I'm like, like that whole idea that live your truth, tell your parents your truth, that's so bullshit. Like as a South Asian person, you're even if you're straight, you're not bringing home your partner until the final candidate, the one you're going to marry. <laughs> the final candidate. <laughs> you can get everybody you want, but you're, it's just, it's like a cultural respect thing, right? So yeah. then just because you're queer, like why are you, sure, like t- once you're financially stable and once you are dating your person that you want to marry, then go through the trouble but why would you put yourself in a situation of risk if you don't need to like mm. I mean obviously if you want to have that open relationship with your parents then yes go for it I'm not saying don't but I think yeah. just the idea of you should risk your safety just because live your truth and we're used to kind of hiding things with brown people mostly not all maybe that's just my experience and folks that I know but yeah no you're not wrong Like I I did actually have a different experience growing up, but I think my experience growing up with my family was very rare and um, not very common compared to a lot of my cousins who are queer and they actually like struggle quite often with opening up to their parents. But it really depends on the type of relationship you have with your family because you're right, like not everyone's just talking about their dating lives with their brown parents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I know that I'm kind of getting better with talking to my mom about my dating life, but even then just you like it's just it's for all of my cousins and even growing up until I you know hit 25 it was don't talk to your parents about your dating life and I think that spotlights why it's so important to take into consideration cultural differences like I think you make such a good point it's so easy for me for example as a white girl to sit here and be like live your truth just say who you are express it to everyone who cares but it's it's not like you have to take into consideration like safety like you said 
and comfort and belonging and all of those things that are so important and vital for our survival. And those are different across cultures. They just are. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because, I mean, I wouldn't even say that's like you as a white person think, saying that. It's just, it's a very, I, the white normative belief of like, oh, just live your truth is so widespread in Western culture where even, you know, my own sibling with South Asian, like brown like me, is kind of has that ideology stuck in like stuck in her head of like oh but you need to be living your truth like how could you not be I'm like what gay content have you been consuming online <laughs> gay tiktok literally read one of the research papers I've written you will understand this um, yeah <laughs> so it's it's very much the western normative like rainbow washing that, mm. that has been happening that pushed totally. ideology yeah that's a great point I'm curious to know this too because you mentioned that your dad said like lesbian is a bad word. We don't say that. So do you remember the first queer person you maybe saw in media or the first queer person that you saw in real life? Okay. So I'm going to be so honest. Anytime I met a white queer person, I was like, yeah, you're queer, but like you're white. So I just, I, I did nothing happened for me. Like there was no like brain orgasm of like, whoa, I could be queer too. There were things that were in my mind of like, like in the background, kind of solidifying that it's okay. So I think the first person, like, yeah, I watched Ellen. I just didn't really like, that was just, I didn't really even pick up that she's queer, to be honest. Me neither. Um, yeah, and- No impact. I, right? So my grade 10 dance teacher, her name is Miss Carson, and she's so fantastic. And she is like openly lesbian, like brought her uh, now wife in, I think they're married then. Yeah, brought her wife into like our, our dance um, thing. So she would openly talk about it. And she's like, she's white, very femme presenting. Her wife is a black woman who is also femme presenting. And that was really profound for me where I was like, whoa, a person of color. Like, oh, I actually relate to this. So that was great. So to explain those experiences, and especially meeting my teacher's wife, helped me feel comfortable even kind of labeling myself as a lesbian in that way. But the moment where I actually had my weight, like, I am, like, for really gay. Like, I can, like, actually, actually, I had, like, two moments of this. The first was when um, Seema and Shannon's photo shoot came out. I was in first year. I was dating a white girl, but it was the first time I realized that I can actually be, like, gay in a way that is meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. Because she had that big Indian wedding. And I was like, oh, like, I could not stop talking about it. I also specifically remember my... This, the part white girl I dated was racist, so it was just a thing. But like she, <laughs> oh, no. yeah, yeah, it was like the whole time. But <laughs> she was like, "Why are you getting so excited about this? Like, calm down." And I was like, I didn't have the knowledge and to a skill set or like a vocabulary at the time to understand why I was so excited, but also why that was so problematic. Um, right. But yeah, that that was like the first queer. I think. First time that it really felt fitting for me. And as of that moment, I actually started really acknowledging my queerness and my brownness without feeling like an outsider. Yeah, because you're seeing you represented. Yeah. Seeing yeah. that I can have that like big Indian wedding where I was like, I think before it was like, I feel like I'm just really living two lives. Right. That's powerful. And even what you said about femme presenting, like let alone seeing a woman of color being openly queer, but some a woman who is femme presenting, like your teacher and your teacher's wife. I think that was a very powerful moment for you as well, Persis. Seeing Huge. like your first femme presenting lesbian on YouTube and you were like, what? 
wait, I don't have to dress like Ellen and have my hair, you know what I mean? Like if Ellen was your only kind of goalpost, you're like, well, I don't look like that in any way. Yeah, I definitely like resonate with that where I'm like so grateful that the people that I kind of saw that socialized and kind of created that knowledge in my head of what a queer person looks like they were femme. I think it's interesting because it was more of like once I was I openly identifying in the community dating people, that's when the the garbage queer socialization came on. And I say garbage because I'm referring to the white trash queer socialization of you need to look butch all the time yes. to be gay. And, like it's great. I'm not saying that that's trash on its own. Like whoever wants to do that, if it works for you, then that's great. But enforcing that belief onto queer bodies of color that don't necessarily resonate with it because of our, like whatever reason, that's when it gets problematic. And that's why I'm calling it out for being white trash. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Pushing any sort of look identity aesthetic on anyone just doesn't work. I'm going to also caveat that with I definitely have a lot of invalidation trauma because of the queer community and the white queer community specifically. So if I sound very aggressive talking about how annoyed I am by white queer norms, <laughs> it's because I've been denied my queerness because I don't look masculine enough even when I like try. No, 1000%. I relate to you. Like I was told multiple times that like, you can't be gay because you don't look, you don't look gay. And yeah. I would believe it. I was like, 18 years old being like, oh, okay, then if someone's telling me that, that must be true. I look like someone who would date men. Yeah. And it's so traumatizing. And it's even like, like, I, I don't know about you, but I've been in like full relationships where like seven months into the relationship, she's like, oh, you're going to leave me for a man. Like, you're just going to like get an arranged marriage or there's no way that you like, you must be bi, which is fine. It's nothing's horrible. There's nothing, I'm not being like perpetuating biphobia, but when I'm telling you I'm gay, believe me like don't assume that just because i'm feminine some part of me must like men yeah like it's it just I, that's happened multiple times and it's interesting because i've dated by women that present as masculine and they will tell me that they're invalidated for their preference of liking men because they present as so masculine and i'm like right. okay so it's really the whole gender situation happening here where people are just you need to look a certain way or like it's more than okay to be angry like i like i think you I think you just apologized for like, sorry if I sound angry, but like you do not need to apologize on this podcast because we talk so much about how the queer community is so intersectional and there is homophobia of all kinds that happens within the queer community. And it's exactly what you're talking about. And these conversations have to happen. Like we can't just all sit here and be like, it's sunshine and rainbows and everyone in the queer community loves each other equally and doesn't doesn't put any amount of prejudice on each other because it's not the reality so like it's what you're saying is extremely important and it's okay to be angry yes thank you thank you for validating that i live, live in basically in the gay village and even just walking through these spaces i just feel so much grief come over me because it's like i belong here but i don't look like i belong here and i feel like people are looking at me like oh there's just a confused brown woman who is probably straight like definitely like I mean I feel like looking at me the assumption is just oh this person right. is straight. like even being do you ever feel like that that people just assume I'm straight yeah like even if you're walk even if you're walking in the gay village if you're going to cruise and tangos do you ever feel like people are looking at you thinking you're confused I feel like I've definitely felt when I'm there people think I'm the straight friend that's going to cruise totally. I find <laughs> it very rare to like go and meet women because I think I'm already put into this box of people look at me and they assume I'm straight. Or I've had people literally tell me, oh, I would not have thought you're into women. 
if I did go and talk to them or get them a drink. And I'm like, why? I'm going to like get you a drink. I'm clearly interested. Yeah, I was just about to say, so have you been outright like microaggressed or like just straight up aggressed? Because that is my experience in cruise and tangos. There was somebody that just looked at me and she was like, straight girls like you belong in your straight bars. I was like, <laughs> I'm literally with my partner, like just a very aggressive, like white masculine presenting woman. And I was like, mm. I, mean, I feel like maybe a femme broke your heart and that's why you're mad. But like. Definitely some like, projecting happening over yeah, there. Yeah, I was. I was <laughs> It was, it was a lot. And then I've also had a drag queen just ask me, like, are you straight? And I was like, no, like, I'm here with my partner, which is also a whole other thing where I don't, I feel like I shouldn't need to be like, I'm with my partner. This is my gay validation status. Like, I'm gay on my own. What, you need to bring your partner everywhere with you and hold their hand and kiss them and make sure there's lots of PDA happening so that it's very clear? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and then I, and then I hit the ear of me only dating brown women. And now it's like, is this your sister? <laughs> Everyone said it gets better. Cause what is this? Oh my God. We follow a lot of, a lot of femme presenting, um, lesbian couples who talk about the sister or friend thing a lot. Like they'll go out for dinner and it'll be like, Oh, you guys splitting the bill. Like just a very simple assumption that is kind of automatically devalidating and kind of frustrating yeah 110 percent. it's just it's so so frustrating all the assumptions did you have like a coming out story because I know you said you had multiple moments of being like okay for realsies now I'm gay but did you like remember telling someone or being like I am coming out all of my coming out story is an accident <laughs> at every party <laughs> so there's like um, I'm just a very naive person um I was on my high school's GSA uh and we had an international coming out day that we we're celebrating. And I thought it'd be a fun idea to write my sexuality on a shirt. And I, at the time, identified as bisexual. So I wrote that. I put it on Instagram just because, like, I just love putting every... I love publicizing my life. Like, I just always have. I didn't realize oh, yeah. I was coming out to people. And apparently I did. And then I was, like, literally two weeks later, because I was dating somebody at the time, uh, like a guy. And... Two weeks later, I realized that, oh, bisexual is actually fit for me as a label. Um, I'm actually gay. Broke up with him, and I had to kind of do some, like, because people were like, oh, like, Ellie's, like, bisexual, like, she just came out. No, nobody was surprised about that. It, like, it was more so just, oh, well, since I already did this and people took it as a coming out, I need to update everyone. So I posted, I had a really fun way to say it. I think it was... Coming out of the closet wouldn't be so difficult if my wardrobe weren't so fabulous. By the way, I'm a lesbian. <laughs> Did you come up with that yourself? That is genius. I know. I was sitting there. I was like, yeah. That's um, amazing. You were like, I'm so smart. <laughs> yeah. And so I posted that. And then I just really thought it would be circulating throughout my friends. But, you know, that whole thing happened where I suppose people are having their own conversations, whatever. But that was when I kind of came out in my social spheres. I Coming out to my family was a different thing because it hasn't happened. I live life on the edge where I'm like so openly out in my work and as an activist. Does my family know? Absolutely not. Like, no way, they don't know. Wow. Okay, so I've been outed to my mom multiple times. So she knows. She's not happy with it. And she's very much like, keep it on the down low. So she doesn't know the extent of the work that I do. 
like she knows that I've dated women and she she knew about my most recent relationship because I got screwed over so bad and she just called me one day and like I just was crying I was like I got cheated on oh yeah yes I got it out I just I had to like just get it out and so she knew about that which was great because I think I've had a really rough relationship with her in terms of my queerness and in that moment me telling her that and telling her that like this person is making me feel anxious all the time she went into mama bear mode instead Mm -hmm. of I don't like that you're gay and dating women mode which she's been in for the last like seven years since I've been outed the first time Mm -hmm. and yeah so after that she's kind of she kind of helped me navigate that she was like okay like you know what whatever you're going to do I just need you to be careful because you are very easily someone who's very easy to manipulate. I feel like mm. I shouldn't be saying this publicly. No, but, that's you know, okay. No, we get vulnerable on this pod. Yeah, I she she pointed she gave me a really good love life advice. She was like, "You're not used to people controlling you, so you dating controlling people doesn't work for you, and you need to be careful because you are someone who is very trusting and it's very easy to manipulate you, and that's why I've seen you at your worst in your last two relationships, and I don't want you to be there in that spot. So if you're going through a rough time or if you're just just in a relationship let me know because i can tell when your relationship's not right for you because you're just off. it's really good advice honestly yeah it was great because my mom at the end of the day knows me probably the best right and right. so that that was really meaningful to me because i had a really rough time like i was outed by that racist that i dated in the first year she straight up told my mom my dad does not know anything at all that's, that's happening he's just ignorance is bliss fair wow and I mean you have a social presence I'm assuming then your dad doesn't use social media or anything so I have them on Facebook I'm very diplomatic on Facebook where I think so in the family I also have this like oh Ali is just our feminist cousin kind of reputation so got it they have very much been categorizing it all under my feminism my cousins know I started after my one cousin outed me in also the summer before first year I told my cousins just so I could be like hey my parents don't know yes this is the case shut the fuck up <laughs> like yeah one. totally so, yeah so that is kind of where where that's at but the understanding is like hey don't tell my parents we're gonna dive into South Asian culture as a whole and how it relates to queerness but I'm just curious you don't have to answer this if you don't want to but are you nervous about being outed to your whole family like your dad and everyone who doesn't know like is that kind of something that gives you anxiety or is it something that you don't really care about because you're so open about it in your regular life i have so many stress disorders (laughs) (laughs) so when i started doing queer activism i was just really naive i was like yeah but if i go by the name ali nobody's gonna find me like no they all know me as sonali I'm not Hannah Montana. That did not work. That show was bad in the So, <laughs> I, um, on a smaller scale, there were, like, it, I was still able to get by, but then all of a sudden, I started going viral, which I am so grateful for, but. Hell yeah. At that, at that point, I, like, when my photo shoot with my ex-partner went viral, I had a moment of, like, am I going to get, like, honor killed? Because that's a thing that has happened. I've seen it in my family, like, not this, like, in a, a generation ago. So, that was a terrifying time. Thankfully, they didn't find it. Nobody said anything. Um, but I was definitely, I was very worried, especially because they looked like engagement photos. And even if people aren't calling to be homophobic, I was worried that someone would call and say, I didn't know Sonali got engaged. Like, like please, nobody do that. So right, thankfully, right. thankfully, nobody did. Um, but I am, I am very nervous about even when I go out of my way to, 
like block aunties and uncles before they follow my social media but I have so many freakouts if they find me first and they'll like try to add me on something or follow me like on TikTok or Instagram so that is yeah. I'm like, just perpetually living my life on the edge and it has been really difficult actually because for the past two years so I've been unemployed and when I got outed I was unemployed but it was so bad to a point where I had to leave my my household I like it was just unlivable conditions with the amount of like just psychological and emotional violence happening and it was like if I don't leave then I'm gonna end up taking my own life and I don't want that so I had to flee family violence been struggling to kind of live just out of my like savings for the past two years and finished my master's thankfully the community supported me with a GoFundMe so I'm very grateful but incredible that's incredible yeah now I'm still in the process of like recovering and trying to get back onto my feet it's like it's difficult because I want to pursue this research because it's for queer South Asian women but also need to find financial security to stay stable because I like realize that I can make it through if I have that financial security even if I'm outed but Right. Um, yeah, just needing the more, a little more stability right now would be, would be great. <laughs> yeah. And of yeah, course. but I think I've also come to the point of realizing like my work is making such a profound impact in every message that I get from somebody who's in the queer South Asian community of how impactful my work is really kind of reiterates that yes, I made this choice at some point of knowing my work is going viral. I acknowledge that I'm cons- every single day putting myself at risk, but if this means making somebody else's life easier then I'm here for it and I'm willing to risk my own safety. I have no words. Like that's why we were so excited to talk to you because you are risking your safety. You are. I feel like trailblazer as a word maybe gets thrown around, but like in your case, like you are truly blazing a trail that has been blazed by very 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 few people. Person I talk about this all the time when we think about like even if we just think about like okay queer women or queer south asian women were like lily singh and then like our brains stop it just is like i don't know um and also we understand your gender fluid as well you told us at the beginning your pronouns are they them but just in just in terms of like you just um, that's fine that's okay in terms of like blazing a trail that truly has not been blazed before that's what you're doing before we like dive a little deeper into south asian culture so that our listeners can all learn a little bit more so you trademarked the name power dyke and i haven't bought official trademarks for it okay you know that meme where it was just you tm'd everything in like 2018 oh yeah that's amazing okay fan you know what it's trademarked in our hearts um, and in our minds so for us you trademarked power dyke and we're obsessed with it and we just wanted to ask you really quick like what that name means to you because it seems to match your what you're putting out there into the world it feels very aligned okay, you want to know the honest story yes okay in grade 12 i did this online quiz of what kind of lesbian are you when i was figuring out my sexuality <laughs> it's always a quiz it was really just like i have never been able to find that quiz ever again in my life so i'm just kind of taking it as like the universe dropped that quiz into my lap and it's like you're gonna be a power dyke and i was like yes but it is really the only like <laughs> some type of like I don't really fit into the mask or femme like that's what I feel but I, I fit into power deck that's what I feel for that's my life. so yeah I just I, I really found that it was it was fitting and that's the only kind of lesbian subtype that I feel seen in amazing we love it yeah, we love it so much thank you so let's talk about South Asian culture a little bit you are Indo-African Gujarati Am I pronouncing that wrong? Gujarati. Gujarati? 
Tell us a bit about Gujarati culture for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I am uh, Indo-African Gujarati. So yeah, I originate from the state of Gujarat. That's where our family is kind of originally based. But during colonialism, a lot of Gujarati folks were sent off to different countries. For me, my family, it was East Africa. For my dad's family, at least. So uh, East and South Africa. So uh, the Gujarati culture there is a little bit different compared to Gujarati culture from India. But I also have that from my mom's side. So there mm. is, um, what can I say about Gujarati culture? There is like, we have our our annual like Navratri celebrations where we have Garba, which is our dance, folk dance, and everybody gets together. There's like thousands of people that show up and we all just dance together. And that is kind of what Gujaratis are probably most known for. Also known for putting a lot of sugar in our foods. <laughs> oh, I love but, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so Gujarati culture is, it is also a little bit more on the conservative side. What part of India is that state? West. Isn't a garba part of a wedding celebration sometimes? Yes. So in uh, Gujarati weddings, instead of the Sangeet, which is the traditional dance night, we will do a Gurba night. But honestly, Gujaratis like break out into Gurba just so often. So there's like the dedicated Gurba night, but at your wedding day, when you're like about like the the one family like kind of comes through with their, their big wedding party and meets the other family at the door, they will also just both families will like see each other and then start doing Gurba together before going in and getting the whole party started. Yes. So it was great. Oh my god! I like. I just can't wait to have a big queer like Daisy wedding. We're gonna garba everywhere. (laughs) I am so excited for that. That's gonna be such a time. I can't wait. If I ever get married, I tell Persis that all the time. In general, where do you think queerness fits in to South Asian culture? Queerness existed in pre-colonial South Asian culture before the British invaded, before the British colonized. They before the British went on something called the sexual civilizing mission for the intentional purpose of eliminating queerness, shaming uh, South Asian body folks for engaging in queer sex and gender fluidity. Where I say it fits in is it is like in, it is inbred, it is inbuilt and entrenched, deeply entrenched in our culture. Even in ways that sometimes a lot of the folks right now from South Asia might not want to accept that it exists, but you know, it is, so the colonizers even erased it from things as far as our, our Hindu scriptures, for example. But if you are still reading the Hindu scriptures, you can still see traces of it and see where that fluidity fit in. And that's just one like you know scripture example. But even in the art of South Asian art, you see uh, like depictions of it. But people will be like, oh, two women together that are like clearly touch. One is touching the other's breast. That is just friendship. Oh. Like the deeply intimate, um, like the gender friendship. Best like friends. The gender friendship in India is seen as just normal, like uh, more normal to be very close and intimate than it is in a Western context. So anything that could potent- that potentially could be queer is just seen as like normal in that way. But that's kind of the reminiscence of what South Asian culture was before colonialism. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's very much just, it's such a natural, normal part of of our culture and even just in society. But unfortunately, I think, look, I mean, not, I think, I know for a fact that queer phobia and homophobia and transphobia is very much a colonial concept that was introduced to South Asian culture. Wow, that's so interesting. I did not know any of that. And then today, obviously because of colonialism, how does queerness fit into South Asian culture like right now in 2022? The post-colonial effects 
you know, the post-colonial South Asian culture now and where queerness fits in very much not really, it's like, we want it to fit. I, I think that our generation is doing a, a lot of great work to decolonize and remind our, our, the older generations of this is, you know, queerness belongs in our culture. We're not westernizing, but there also happens to be a view from our older generation that, oh, being queer is a western concept. Like, mm. you're westernized by being gay. Like, this isn't for us. Like, you need to have a heterosexual marriage. That's what's right. And it's, mm. it's really this view that but being queer is a Western concept, and that's that's you know where the fundamental flaw is. But it's very difficult to exist as a queer person that is South Asian because even in the diaspora uh, here, when you want to you know be queer, you're just kind of seen as whitewashed. And that's not only from our older generation, but even it from South Asian heterosexual peers. The way I've always been treated by other South Asian heterosexual folks is, oh, Ali's gay. She's so white. Like, yeah, I grew up in a white town. I'm not whitewashed because I'm gay. Like if I'm, yeah. I don't think I'm whitewashed, but if I am, it's because I grew up in a white town, right? And then yeah. it's, uh, I think it, it's just very difficult to kind of make it fit in a way that is coexists for South Asian and queerness. And I think, and I don't only blame white people, honestly, I also do put a lot of accountability here on South Asian heterosexual folks who are not letting queerness take part. For, take, for example, Mindy Kaling's um, Never Have I Ever. I thought it was a brilliant show. I love Mindy Kaling so much. I think she does an absolutely incredible job. And I think she got a lot of undue like hatred that should not have been criticized because she was reflecting her own experience. Yeah. But mm. her inclusion of queerness did not include South Asians. Like there was white folks were queer. queer. There were other, uh, there was a, the black woman who was queer. But she had yeah. all the opportunity for any of the South Asian cast to be queer, at least mm -hmm. one of them. And, and she didn't. And it was really disappointing and heartbreaking to see that Mindy, who is somebody who is a queer ally, forgets the, that South Asians can be queer too. And like just does not mm. prioritize that visibility. And I think that is sort of that piece of ignorance where it's not necessarily always intentional exclusion it is just exclusion by by ignorance and not knowing any better and i don't like right. it, to some degree it's like it's it's not their fault it's not malicious but it's just a, like a point of grief where for existing especially when a lot of us queer folks can't speak up in our south asian communities because of all of the prejudice and all of the it can risk our safety there's a lot of gossip that happens so yeah and there are so few south asian creators at the level that mindy kaling is at right she's there she has the platform she has netflix like she's a huge star and she has the opportunity to maybe make a change and maybe bring representation in and then she doesn't like that letdown because there are so few opportunities yeah yeah and like i mean i thought her show was great like i really appreciated that she had queer Tamil, oh, sorry, not queer, but uh, she had Tamil representation, which you would yeah. often see in, like, in the media, especially when South Asian folks are represented, but it's just, I, I really did, and I think even just reading the online criticism, when people were going out of their way, people were really reaching with some of those criticisms, and nobody pointed out the queer thing, and I was mm. like, wow, look at all the heterosexual privilege. <laughs> so much of it. Truly, though, that was my only issue as well. I thought the exact same thing when I watched the show. I was like, why isn't there any queer South Asian rep? Because 
I'm even thinking off the top of my head right now. I don't think we have like any of that rep in the media, really. Yeah, I think that like that one Netflix show manifest in like one of the later seasons, there is the, the South Asian researcher. She's a woman and she it's like so subtly mentioned that she's queer. Oh, I only but, saw like a couple episodes from the first season, so I didn't watch much, but she was cute. I had a crush on her, if that's the one uh, I'm thinking of. Yes, yes, yes. The one who is like dating Alex. Alex is a woman. Okay. I didn't finish Manifest, but I'm going to go back and watch it now. I did not know. <laughs> I like screamed out loud when that happened. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, watching this. I love that. Okay, cool. I've never even heard of the show. I need to watch it, right? Manifest? Yes. Thank you for teaching us a little bit about the culture of queerness in South Asian culture because, or the history of it, sorry, because I had no idea. I don't know, Purse, if you knew any of that, but I didn't. No, I didn't. And I think it's so interesting, the irony of like, queerness was traditionally in South Asian culture. Then South Asia was colonized by white people and all the queerness was stripped away. And now the current South Asian culture is like, queerness is white and you shouldn't be queer essentially because it's the white Western way. But that was what took the queerness originally out. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so ironic. Oh yeah, exactly. And now like the white queer folks here are saying like, oh, but if you're going to be queer, you have to be queer in the white way like us, because if you're brown, then you're not queer. And you're like, make up your mind you wanted us to be straight and now you're telling us that we have to be like white it's just ridiculous it's really a lot of gatekeeping and a lot of recolonizing south asian bodies in the diaspora right and before we move on i just wanted to say for any listeners who didn't know can you just explain what you mean by diaspora in case anyone's confused by that term yes so uh diaspora is essentially a like another term synonymously could just be like an immigrant group like a group that comes from another country and now we're relocated in a different one so just right synonymous to immigrant groups perfect thank you just in case anyone was listening and they're like huh what's that (laughs) (laughs) what's that again (laughs) what were your feelings about queerness growing up you were saying like your family definitely like wasn't very supportive at all so in that sense like your family definitely must have had an impact on you. So what were your, your just like internal feelings? Of queerness. Of queerness. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, so for me, it was, I knew that I liked women. So I really never kind of felt accepted by my family for who I am. And even before the whole queerness, I'm just really extra as a person. And my family's really like tame and like not, like the exact opposite of me. Like they're not, like outspoken they're not as bold they're not loud so I just never really felt like I fit into my family so when the whole queer realization happened I was like of course it's just one more difference like someone just tell me I'm adopted like I clearly don't belong (laughs) in this family to understand my queerness I I definitely had to do a lot of that on my own I knew that I couldn't talk to my family but especially after I was outed in the first time after first year but I just assumed that I had to be with a man, like compulsory heterosexuality. So Mm -hmm. even when I was accepting that part of me of like, yes, I also like women, I just assumed that I had to like men as well and that I have to see myself with a man. And I think in a lot of ways, this was really challenging and difficult where I wasn't sure if my hatred towards men, my relationships with men and that like, like I think I had like a sense of like I just don't feel comfortable and I didn't know if it was just because I'm so like 
fuck the patriarchy, like, down with men, like, I, <laughs> I really, for a while, kind of, you know, just assumed it must have been that, and I kept trying to date men, and I, it wasn't working, it felt more natural with women, but then the thing, too, is, like, the men I've dated have been fantastic, amazing people, I'm still, like, best friends with almost all of the men that I have dated, totally. and I have dated really abusive women, like, Ooh. I, God gave me no reason to be gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm kind of having a rough time out here with these I have, I've dated, like, people with narcissistic personality disorder, and, like, and, yeah, like, literally the worst time of my life. I, I mean, I grew a lot, so it's fine. I mean, I've dated some very lovely women, too. Not all of them have been horrible. I'm trying to figure out my queerness amidst that of, like, okay, I clearly feel queer, and clearly don't have the best luck here, but I mean, to put it lightly and slightly comedic terms, it's when you've been in so many abusive relationships with women, but you know you still have a preference for women, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm gay and what? Like, yeah. I don't have any reason to be. I have all the reason not to want to, but clearly this is something that is just something I can't change about myself. And it's like, yeah, for sure. I think that makes so much sense that even though you're experiencing these like really traumatic relationships, you're still gay. And like, these are just learning lessons, right? Like no matter what, you're learning something from each relationship. But yeah, I'm sorry that you've gone through a lot of ups and downs in your life. Yeah, no, it's okay. I think the point I was getting at too is like, you know, after like every couple of toxic relationships, I kind of try the whole men thing again, where I'm like, let me just try this one more time, right? And I think at, at some point, I got to a point where I was like, I can't, like, I just, this isn't working no matter what. Like I, if I'm actually loving someone, I only experience love towards women. Mm-hmm. Right. That compulsive heterosexuality that you were talking about that you were feeling as you were growing up, like even before you started dating women, do you feel like that was more society causing that or more your culture, more your family? I want to say it was both. Like, I mean, this is probably like a little fucked up, but like, I feel like South Asian culture is so like to daughters, at least, okay, so at least my experience in South Asian culture as a, South, uh, as a Gujarati daughter, it was very much like, oh, you're going to get married or so, like, you know, no one's going to marry you if like, you're whatever, you can't do whatever. Or like, oh, when you go up to your in-laws, like I've been like being hearing like casual phrases like that since I was so young, but also kind of like, I, was, I remember being in the third grade planning out my whole wedding, which was like going to be to a man. And like, I mean, I actually never technically planned him into my wedding plans, but <laughs> it was more about the outfits, less about him. Honestly, yeah, it was more about the outfits. But it was, you know, just thinking about like, oh, what kind of man do I want from that young age of like, oh, I'm going to marry someone, like a man. And I think honestly, and to tie this into your other question, when I started realizing that I really don't like men, I just started feeling grief. Like, I am so sad that I am not able to love a man because I could just make my make my family happy it's not even about what's doing like what's easier because I love like challenging societal norms but it's I can like I'm sad that I I won't be able to fit my parents dream of what they want for me which is you know to have a son-in-law like they to have me married off in a way that's easy for them and they don't have to deal with the family backlash it was really sad and I think it's 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 still a little bit of that grief of like I love my life as being a queer person. I love being queer. I wouldn't change that for the world. I sometimes wish that I was not 100% gay because I want did that option for myself to be able to feel something towards men so I can just be able to do what is easiest for my parents mm-hmm. and then and still be able to do this queer work. But hey, that's You're fine. you. You're you though, right? I mean, 
I'm very hopeful that I will have healthy relationships with women and manifesting it. And I love being gay. And I, I honestly, I love, I, I've come to really love and accept myself as somebody who is feminine presenting, no matter, like, I've tried presenting as a mask, it doesn't work. But I'm a femme presenting person and I'm fully gay. And I struggled with accepting and loving this about myself for so long, but I'm like, you know what? No, this is what I am. This is how I'm going to present. This is how I feel good. And the queer community is going to accept it, whether they like it or not, because it is time for them to change their minds and not force me to feel like shit about it. Mm-hmm. Can that be the whole soundbite for this entire conversation? Yes. First, write down <laughs> this timestamp. Like that <laughs> is a soundbite right there. And also, I just, I really appreciate you bringing the real talk because what you were saying about the grief you were feeling, like, I think that's extremely common for queer people all the guests we've had on have talked about that kind of feeling that comes with not just coming out, but the whole exploration of your sexuality. And it would be ignorant to sit here and be like, you know, once you discover you're queer, it's like celebration. You better celebrate that. It's all good. It's all finally, I feel happy. Like there's a lot of sadness that comes along with that too. A lot of like grief and loss and like confusion. So it's not, it's refreshing to hear you talk about all sides of the coin. It's yep. not black or white. Thank you. I feel like really good relationships are coming both your ways. I can like feel it. I hope so. I can feel it in the air. It's coming. We'll just like do this thing where we set each other up. How about that? Listen, okay. If I had a cute girl to set purses up with, I would have done it by now. So Ali, you need to help out because like I have tried. Oh my goodness. Are you, are you based in Toronto right now or are you in Vancouver? I'm in Toronto. Okay. I got you. So I, the Queer South Asian Women's Network, we'll just put together like this Bachelorette series just for you. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm so down for this. Oh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I love matchmaking people. I just like love love and I just, I'm very excited about it. We love love on this podcast. We do. We really I'm putting do. my trust in you. I have all, <laughs> putting all my trust in you. So what's your zodiac real quick and then we'll continue. Um, I'm a Libra. Me too. Okay. Oh. I love it. When's your birthday? October 22nd. Love October. it. I'm September 28th. Okay. Sorry. We can continue with your questions. <laughs> I love this so much. We want to talk a little bit about how you started getting into advocacy work. All the grief that you're talking about, it's a lot. And you're feeling like you're stuck between two worlds. And you basically have to rebel against your family to go into this work that you love so much and that you do right now. So what kind of led you to this rebelling stage? I'm putting air quotes around that. In the face of like disapproval and judgment and uncertainty. So my dad had told me when I was really young, multiple times, that it's impossible for me to change the world. And I was like, LMAO, bet. Okay, so did you just like naturally have that as a kid? Yeah, like, I mean, I was like, why are you telling me it's impossible for me to change the world? Like, I'm not going to listen to you. Yeah. Um, I I mean, as like a respectful foundation daughter, I probably should have. But I just, I was like, no, it's not true. Like, I am going to make a difference in the world. Like, I just, I felt it. I don't, like, I didn't know how. Like, and I mean, like, I was probably in the sixth or seventh grade when these conversations were happening. Um, And like, I see their point. I see that he like was coming from a perspective of you just need to set yourself up in a comfortable position, uh, you know, them being like immigrants because that was what they valued. But I think for me, I was like, I just, there's, I was, I've been very into activism, very into advocacy. For me, it was just, I I want, even me rebelling in the smallest ways, was like, I want to be part of the student club you can pick me up later. I don't care if you're going to yell at me for it, but this is something that makes me happy. Like even me throughout undergrad, it's like so funny that I'm an academic because 
me in undergrad, like I was like, there are people that go to school for academics and people that go to school for the clubs and extracurriculars. I was yeah. definitely in the latter category. Yeah. But Amazing. It was like, this is what brings me joy and allows me to like, you know, it's like my passion, right? To like do activism advocacy work, to like be engaged in social justice work. Maybe that's just the Libra in me too. Yeah. Very it's much just, that's true. quality. Yeah, exactly. And so that it was like it was rebelling in small ways where I think I definitely had the like South Asian parents that are not the ones to be like go and do every academic like club and whatever mine were like you go to school you come home no extracurriculars that's not how you're gonna get a nine-to-five job hmm. I was right. like you're wrong I'm doing yeah. what makes me happy so it sounds like it was kind of just naturally in you like it was your passion it was what you it was what you believed is what you felt so you just there was no other option it wasn't like, do I rebel or do I not? It was like, I have to. I I just, what they were saying was just going over my head. And I was like, I just don't yeah. care. What are you going to do? Yell at me? Fine, do it then. Um, like, I don't recommend it for everyone. Um, that right. should work for me. But I think it was just, I was just so tired of being like forced to be their version of normal. Like they, my family has always, since I was young, tried to tone me down and make me like that typical quiet Indian girl but I was like I'm not that like that's not me and like even with my activism like it wasn't like like I didn't start with queer activism I think that's the other thing is like like the very first form of activism and advocacy I engaged in was like environmental activism in grade seven like I was mm-hmm. on the eco club mm-hmm. and so they kind of knew that I just like they were like the I think the translation terms they called me a preacher um somebody who's just <laughs> preaching about like equity stuff all the time and, and then from there, it was, like, gender issues and then queer issues. So I just, like, it's just so natural for me. You've touched on it a little bit, but how did all of what we just talked about impact your mental health? Because you went through a lot. You Everything you just said is a lot. Like, I, like, and if anyone, like, maybe we'll even put a little bit of a trigger warning on this episode, too, just in terms of, like, you're so good at, like, kind of laughing at your... <laughs> at your shit and I love that like making it like a joke because sometimes it's what you got to do but it's heavy and you've been through a lot so if you feel comfortable like how has that impacted your mental health yeah definitely I'm I as you could tell laughing and humor is definitely a coping mechanism of mine yeah um, but <laughs> um, it has really horribly impacted my mental health um, to a point where I think was, I had like really bad somatic symptoms so the early stages of it was just like, oh, like depression and really bad stress. I have like had a stress condition since I was like in early, like early high school or late elementary school, I think of like, I wake up in the middle of the night with really bad chest pain and it's specifically caused by stress. So there's that. But as I kind of grew older, it got a lot worse. Like it was not only depression, it was really bad in, like anxiety to a point where I couldn't like function. And my body is was constantly in pain and I'm finally recovered from that a little bit but I had two years or three years of my body was in so much pain no matter how much exercise I could do how much stretching nothing like I could go like get a whole body massage but immediately tense up because all the stress was just in my body and it was so bad like really bad PTSD from like a lot of the situations that happened um it was like even the anxiety I remember at some some point just two two years exactly ago was so bad to a point where I couldn't even speak a whole sentence I it, it was so bad like I I couldn't really do anything because I could not speak I could not move like everything was constantly in pain 
Wow. It was the worst time of my life. It was, and I was piddling, like just, you know, spiraling in a pit of depression because I pride myself on getting, not only pride myself on doing so much work, but it's more of like, I love doing all this work. And if I'm not doing it, I'm more stressed out because I can't do it. And knowing that I, I just feeling like I'm disappointing so many people by not being able to kind of follow through. So, you know, just, just layers and layers of layers. When I was in that really dark place where I couldn't even speak a whole sentence, I, I couldn't move my body because I had so much body pain, but I was also unemployed, so I couldn't seek out proper therapy to help myself. That was December 2020. And at that point, I, I tried making my first escape from my family home, and I caught COVID. And then that gave me a week in, honestly, that was the best week of my life because I thought I was gonna die. And I was really excited about it because I was like, I'm about to be put out of my pain and misery. And in retrospect, I recognize how absolutely fucked up that is. But that's what I was experiencing at the time. Like, it, it is what it is. And after I recovered, I, I was also just very surprised that I recovered because I'm immunocompromised. But thankfully, I did. And I, I left. I, fled, I left that family home. And that's when I started beginning my healing journey. It wasn't off to a great start. I found myself in another abusive relationship. Um, but as, like, as kind of time passed, as I was able to work through, I was able to work through my pain, my trauma, my stress. And even after I got out of that relationship too, it's been a lot better. I've been able to start releasing the pain from my body and just really, I'm, especially after I got out of that relationship, I'm finding that I'm able to do a lot of the healing work and my mental health has become improved by doing a lot of self-worth work and getting into figuring breaking patterns and figuring out what the deep-rooted causes are you know working through the childhood trauma relationship trauma things that are like beliefs that are causing me to allow in situations and people that are causing harm to me so I can you know stop that and doing what I need to do nourishing myself because that's also something that I didn't do before like I literally treated sleep like a reward before and now I, I value and I prioritize that yeah. a lot more. Like I went through right. six years of my life sleeping maximum four hours a night um, Wow! because I was overworking myself because I was worried about disappointing people and now I'm like, okay, take a step back. Let me, let me work on feeding myself well. Let me work on sleeping well. Let me figure out how to do all this work that I need to do without harming myself and also you know, I'm a very social person. I love people. So how can I fit in a social life still to nourish myself? And that's, it's been realizing that I need to take care of myself and breaking those patterns that have really helped my mental health a lot. And now also just, I think there's one belief that I've really uh, held close on to me is that everything that happens, um, happens for me, not to me. And the universe is working in my favor. And I've been noticing just me really aligning with the universe in a lot of ways. And finding that balance, I think it's helpful to have that viewpoint of the universe when, when you're looking for that balance, because that's what the universe is trying to give you, ultimately. Absolutely. And, and I think just like, I, I think I didn't have this belief before, and I feel like this is why I was suffering so much. But now I'm very confident that my end outcome is going to be fantastic. The universe is going to give me an abundance of so much love, joy, and like just bliss. I know I've had a very difficult life and this is why I'm like, no, this is all for a reason. Mm -hmm. I am headed towards something that is great. I know I'm still in difficult situations, but 
for me, it's going to get better. The universe wants me to succeed. First of all, thank you for being so vulnerable with us and for sharing that. I think that it's so, your story is so beautiful. It's very important for people to hear what everything you just said. I would imagine a lot of people relate to what you just said. And especially with you talking about your financial situation and having to flee your family home and not being able to afford therapy, for example, can you give, as you were going through the work of healing, even though you were in the abusive relationship, maybe even after that, as you were trying to do some more, more of that self-worth work, can you give any examples of like practical ways that you did that? It doesn't, you don't have to make it extensive, but if there were any few things that like really helped in that healing journey over the past few years? Yes, I, I can actually give you a bullet point list because I would love to talk about this for people that also can't afford therapy. So the, yes. uh, one of the mo first things that I did was I, I journaled a lot. I've been journaling since. Um, and I just, I asked, it started off with what am I feeling and why am I feeling this and asking a lot of why questions. And that's how I figured out how to break certain patterns. And that is how I developed a lot of self-awareness. So definitely recommend journaling. This is this one does kind of cost some money. It's not too expensive, but I started working with crystals. I know some people have their their tips with crystals. Of, oh, they're just rocks. But for me, it's been very helpful. It is the only way I was able to release somatic body pain. Mindfulness meditation. Um, I used both a combination of Headspace and also the ones just on YouTube that were specifically tailored to like release childhood trauma and like release whatever. Those meditations were extremely helpful. I did at some point start getting into um, the the hypnosis. I would I would recommend stay away from the hypnosis because it can actually mess up your brain. But uh, the meditations were great. I was most centered and with myself when I was doing um, meditate like meditations, mindfulness work. Um, yoga didn't really sit with me too much. I think I'm just too impatient for it. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, also, I hear you. Yeah. Hypothetically, physical activity works for me really well, like weightlifting. Um, I haven't been as consistent with it, but that was definitely a good good one as well. But really the, the journaling, meditation, and just really having those difficult conversations with yourself, even if it's just in a journal, writing out everything that I'm feeling and figuring everything out in terms of my thoughts and what's going on for me, that is the number one biggest thing. Oh, and I wrote poetry during the time to track my feelings. Oh, I love Amazing. That. Yeah, here's a secret. I actually, um, ooh, it's, I guess the first time I'm announcing it, but I wrote, I'm pu now publishing all the poems as a book, and it's a trajectory of how I got from the worst part, like right before the worst part of my life started is when I started writing, and then the whole dunk into like the shit show and how I came out to the end. Like I wrote my thought process during that time. What? Oh my God. You're publishing it? I am. I'm publishing it. It's going to come out in June or July. <gasps> of this year? Of this year. The book is, the book title is going to be Don't Tell My Parents. I love that. That's amazing. Okay. Well, we can't wait for that. And thank you for sharing all those tips. I genuinely think it's really important to talk about like how to take care of your mental health when you don't have the finances for therapy or even like with all of your chronic pain, massage or an expensive gym membership or whatever. I think it's really important to keep all of that in mind. You've had a lot of firsts as a queer South Asian woman, like we talked about before. You were the first South Asian speaker at Toronto's Dyke March in 2020. You were the first to research culturally unique discrimination against queer South Asian women. 
And you were the first to start an organization specifically for queer South Asian women in North America, which we're going to talk about in a little bit more depth, the Queer South Asian Women's Network. So how did it feel to accomplish all of these firsts? And how does that tie into that mental health journey that you just talked about? Healing and then also accomplishing so much like those two things can exist at the same time, mental health struggles and like really like incredible accomplishment in your life and in your career. How do those things kind of mesh? As I mentioned earlier, I've been doing so much of my work from a place of passion that I didn't even kind of realize that my work would have a bigger impact. People would, you know, be responding to my work and taking it in. Um, and so being the kind of like giving myself that title of that first was so difficult for me. Like, I, I know I'm the first, like, I, I, I know that nobody else has done it. Like I've done the research to make sure on that end. And I mean, I started this because I was like, there's literally nobody doing this. Someone's got to do it. Yeah. I gaslit myself so much. And I was like, what if people think I'm like weird for like acknowledging that I'm the first, even though I am like a lot of those like self invalidation points, it was really difficult for me to actually own my accomplishments. And it's still a work in progress. Like, I, like, I, it, it's, it's honestly so wild to me where I'm like, yeah, these are words, but then I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, yeah, this. So it definitely, it took a really long time for me to acknowledge and own my accomplishments, even though I had been doing it. I think it's because I was doing it from a place of passion and not from a place of like, I'm doing this to add another accomplishment to my thing. Like, there are so many things that I've accomplished, but I've literally just, forgotten about until somebody reminds me years later and I'm like oh yeah I did that like that's yeah. pretty cool um <laughs> so a lot of and a lot of the gaslighting and validation did come from like um I guess my upbringing where I was told like oh like you're not you ain't shit like you're not gonna be the one to change the world um and then realizing that I did was profound because I was like whoa wait a minute I just did and then also like while I was accomplishing these being in abusive relationships with people who were very intentionally bringing me down and trying to break my confidence and telling me like you can't just go around like I would I think three before I actually went viral I joked about how I'm going to be famous for my work um and she made a point to always tell me like you can't go around saying that that's so like obnoxious of you like people aren't going to like you and that stuff really got to me then because I wasn't as assured in myself like I know that I come across a very confident person and honestly it's just because I speak from a place of passion I actually like I have definitely struggled with like feeling confident about myself it was a very difficult on my mental health because I think people saw me as somebody who was very confident who was very assured who was like you know doing so great living my best life but especially when I was going through so much other really difficult points in my life I I felt like an imposter I was like I feel like everybody wants me to be this person who's great and put together but I'm not that and before my work really went viral my entire aesthetic was like I'm a mess everyone be a mess with me on social media like Mm. let's just figure out this journey together it's like interesting because I get a lot of like questions about uh, a lot of assumptions about like oh you know my parents are accepting and my like life is great and that's fine I'm happy to like debunk those myths it's just I think um it gets I I end up definitely feeling like I'm not good enough or feeling like I'm not fulfilling what people people's expectations so but yeah even just in the context of like claiming those firsts that was really difficult um I don't know why it's like 
Like, it's like you're seeing something on paper where you're like, yeah, I know I am, but like... No, it's like, it's imposter syndrome. It's exactly like you said. It's gaslighting yourself and it's imposter syndrome. And we all have it, especially women, because we're constantly told to just like be a little bit more quiet and reserved and to not to not claim we're the best. We have to be humble. And yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. Like, I think I've been told so many times like you need to be more humble. And I'm like, I don't understand because it seems like you're telling me that I need to not own my accomplishments because it's it's cocky and obnoxious for me to own them. But I'm not... Oh, trying to like you know claim my accomplishments is like I'm better than everyone I don't think that at all that's that the difference is, yeah exactly my thing is like no I just did these things like I just want yep. credit for my work but no and the first thing is so interesting because that's a fact like when you say I was the first um South Asian speaker at the Dyke Merge that it's you're not saying I was the best speaker that was ever there you're saying this is a fact I there has never been a South Asian speaker before me so it's just funny that like we we think that that is not being humble when in reality, like I'm literally stating the fact like this is just an, an accomplishment that I that I made. Yeah, definitely. And I think I always worry because I'm like, well, I don't want to seem like somebody who is not approachable and I don't want people to think that I'm a mean person or like people to not approach me because they think I'm mean because I've like accomplished X, Y and Z because at the end of the day, like the reason I started putting myself out there is to be able to create visibility and create safer spaces mm -hmm. um, and be somebody who is approachable. So I mean, if people want to think I'm mean and they don't want to approach me, that's fine. But if they're not approaching me because they assume I'm mean, but they want to, then that's a problem. So I've had to do a lot of that kind of work and uh, kind of bring myself back to a point of like realizing like, this is fine. I can own my accomplishments and I just need to be me because if anyone is actually seeing me for me once they've seen me interact with someone i think that they can probably gauge that i'm not a monster and that i'm more or less warm energy yeah of course <laughs> and also that's the patriarchy talking like if a man made a great accomplishment he wouldn't be worried that people thought he was a bitch or mean or scary he'd be like everyone's gonna be like this guy's awesome and they're gonna flock to me and i'm they're, they're gonna be attracted to me but if, as a woman, if you make an accomplishment, immediately you're like, I don't want people to think that I'm like a bitch. Yeah, I, I think the, the interesting thing too is like, before I even started doing a lot more of the queer South Asian work, I was in student politics in undergrad. I, nice. My like, reputation was like, Ali is a huge bitch, but she gets shit done really well. <laughs> really? So those were from people who didn't know me. People yeah. in me were like, oh, Ali's like really warm, very loving, and she gets stuff, like gets shit done. You know, the underlying thing was Ali gets shit done. But people that actually knew me, they're like, Ali is very warm, she's wonderful. People that didn't know me were just like, oh, she's a bitch. So, and like, hmm. I, I was like, okay, so then when I started kind of doing this in queer South Asian spaces, I was very hesitant because, you know, in undergrad, I was like, I don't give a fuck if I'm a bitch, fuck you. But yeah. like, those were people that, like they weren't the same as my community where I'm trying to build a community space and bring people together. So in this case, I'm more like, okay, I don't want you to think I'm unapproachable when we have such few people that are out and open as queer uh, or like just openly queer South Asian that could be approachable. So. Right. 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 Yeah. That's <laughs> interesting. You're definitely right about the, the patriarchy part about when you were mentioning like, Oh, men are like, Oh, I accomplished things. People are gonna be so attracted to me. I literally, have, I just realized I've had the opposite where I'm like, Oh, I feel like people aren't attracted to me because I am so out there in the community doing so many things. They probably are just assuming that I'm like not going to make time for them and whatever. Yeah. Yep. 
You just fixed something in my man, unblocked something in my manifestation of love. Thank you. You're welcome. I got you. It's just such a tired trope. Like I don't, I know you guys feel the same way. I'm so sick of this like stereotype of an assertive, accomplished woman equals unapproachable and mean. Like I, I'm, it's not true. It's so tired and old and I just think it needs to get the hell out of here. But at the same time, it still exists in like the zeitgeist. And so you do still have to think about it as, like you said, not just an advocate, but like a trailblazing advocate and you want to make sure that like other queer South Asian women can feel like they can talk to you or that they can relate to you and approach you. So it's it's interesting. You have more layers to think about than just like fuck the patriarchy. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also interesting because even like, you know, in queer South Asian space, people do things like speed friending and people will always like tell me like, you look, you look very stern. Like you look like I wouldn't want to mess with you. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> That's so funny, like that. I don't know about you, purse. Like that's not my perception. Mm -hmm. Thank you. The opposite. No, like the moment you jumped on this call, you were just all like, "Hey, I'm an open book. Like, let's chat." Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny, like perception. Man, we could have a whole conversation about perception. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely a process of unlearning, like not caring what people will think about me. Which I think, as a South Asian, where I've been so taught, like, you, what will people think of you? Like, you know, you need to learn how to be perfect from like the minute you're like out of the room, you can't mess up whatsoever. And people are always watching you. So that is definitely something I had to unlearn. Even, I just, it was definitely a challenge adjusting to like, oh, there's so many eyes on me. And I definitely went through a little period of like, let me stop. I was overthinking everything I was posting. Like, oh my God, are people gonna think I'm like horrible? Like, what am I posting mm -hmm. the right thing? Are people like not gonna like me if I'm not posting what they want me to post? Um, and yeah. Right. Well, I would hear that too. I feel like that's so common in South Asian culture. It's like, what will people think? Like that was also instilled in me too when I was growing up. Like yeah. what is, what are people going to think of you? Yeah. It's, it's horrible. It's like they're forcing us to be perfect. You can't mess up one bit. Like, let me just be a child. Let me just be a person. Yes. I'm human. Yeah. Like humans make mistakes and it's just so much. I wonder where that perfection thing comes from in the South Asian culture. Because I have, I have quite a few South Asian friends and they've all said this. It's very much like the gossip culture where everyone's like, like, you right. know, spreading gossip. They'll like, like tell their parents, the aunties will talk, the, uh, or the uncles talk too. Like they'll gossip and it's, it's very much like you don't want to be gossiped about and that's why you need to be perfect. And so <laughs> it's like, right. and I think even as we get older, there's like this whole thing of like, okay, fine. Like you can go out and like do, you know, date whoever you want, whatever. But at the end of the day, you come home, marry somebody who is the same kind of South Asian as you, same religion, marry that perfect person and all of your mistakes are washed away. Really? That's, yeah, that's true. Like that's the pinnacle, right? Like marrying, not just an Indian man, but like a man who, a Gujarati man. Yeah. Even when I was much younger, like my mom, I remember my parents saying we have to marry Patels. I was like, that's a lot of pressure, y'all. It's a lot. Yep. It's a lot. I mean, I think after my queerness thing, my mom is now like, okay, do you just want to marry a white man? Like, I'll let you marry a white man. That's fine. Like, far opposite. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. She's like, let's make a compromise. Okay. Let's <laughs> be in the middle. You're like, yeah, that is not the middle. <laughs> Mom. Yeah, she's really trying to compromise. I'm like, okay. Oh You're like, that's not what it means. I love this whole conversation. It was really important to dive into all of that. But we really want to talk about the um, Queer South Asian Women's Network. 
Yes. yes. What do you know about us? Well, like, how did you start it? Okay, so um, maybe a cheesy story, but I, I just, I saw that there was no, like, nothing for queer South Asian women. Um, I really, I when I grew up, I really thought that I was the only queer South Asian woman. And then when I did my first research study in my fourth year of university, that was the first time I was actually finally able to, like, talk to other queer South Asian women. But it was so difficult even doing participant recruitment. But out of everyone I spoke to, everybody was saying the exact same thing, like, there is no dedicated queer South Asian woman space. And even when I would finally find like other queer South Asian folks, they, they would be men that would kind of say like, oh yeah, there actually is nothing for queer South Asian women. So I kind of, I, I started planning this idea of like, I want to start an organization. I have a lot of student leadership experience. Like I'm sure that this won't be like difficult to, for me to, you know, put together. I had my plans in action. I was like ready to go. And I remember I, that's when an old childhood friend came back into my life who was also queer and Gujarati and uh we went on a, a date it was great linking up from somebody from the first grade <laughs> um cute I love that I, it was great and I, I told her about my idea I was like hey I want to start this organization do you want to be part of it too so and she was like you know what you're right there's nothing for us that's great let's like you should do it I'm gonna I'll support you in it and so that's when I I kind of went about it it was great bouncing my ideas kind of offer for like our like design our logo so we I did that I, I started the organization and she was there and supporting that as well she validated a lot of what I was feeling really good emotional support honestly to make sure it, it happened and yeah so I did that and as soon as I put up our Instagram page and our Facebook page Houston Network blew up like I was amazed like I had a blueprint plan of like let's do a soft launch for one year, see what the community has to say, and then I'll implement that into our hard launch and kind of go accordingly. And I was so taken aback because during that soft launch period, we went viral as an organization globally. Like this is, wow. even to this day, every single, there's not one day that goes by that we do not get follows on our page. I love not, that. And I'm like, so grateful for that. Uh, judging our metrics and performance metrics based on followers, but seeing that we have more followers and less time than like some really established organizations it, it really speaks volumes to how much our community has needed this space we just continue to grow based on like you know people showing up for spaces um and doing what i can with my capacity uh, knowing that i you know i haven't been able to like we are a registered nonprofit now which is great we haven't had been able to fully flush out different roles for people to do certain things but it's been great we do have some members so it's been great trying to expand our capacity and knowing that we can expand our class because we have so much community love. And I'm honestly so grateful for our community space that we have built. I just want this to be a fun and inclusive and safe space for people. And I think that's the energy that people are really bringing to it. I like, I have a fear of like cancel culture and like messing up and like it's scary. Yeah. I think just doing anything that can like upset somebody, I, like the way I kind of approach it is like, I'm just going to be deeply vulnerable and say like, Hey, I don't know everything. And I acknowledge that but I'm really open to learning. And that is the value that I bring to my, to this organization that I've created. So if yeah. you have anything to add, please let me know and I'll make that change. So if someone is a part of the network, what kind of things might they have access to? Events, resources? So um, events predominantly because I strongly believe in social support. That is the biggest need that our community needs. The reason I actually named a network is because my goal and vision with this was to connect queer South Asian women from mm -hmm. very- Matchmaker. 
Yes. And even just for friendship too, to, you know, provide that social support. So we have the, our most consistent event series is the Chai and Chill series. We have monthly workshops mm-hmm. on the first Thursday of every month at 9 p.m. Eastern. Something I'm really big on is not creating a cliquey space and making sure that it doesn't feel like a clique. So when people, new people come in, you know, we have that workshop space where we learn something and everybody uh, has a chance to like, you know, talk, meet each other. And then whoever wants to stay on after the two hour workshop, we have a great community even that where we like are just getting to know each other. And we, there's just people who, um, like our events, honestly, those two go on for like six or seven hours sometimes just because people are just having fun conversations and we can really support each other. And there's so many friendships that have blossomed because people have met at our events and now they feel like they have community and it's great. So really that strong sense of community and love is something that is really something that they have access to and something that I prioritize. Like if there's someone who attends our events and then they stop attending because we all follow each other, I like we'll make it a point to personally reach out to them and ask like, hey, how's everything going? Is everything okay? Is there anything I can do to make our events more accessible? If you want to come back, totally fine if you don't. And I know that's that's something that, yeah, people have really appreciated. Oh, that is what I need. Yeah, person is going to be your new, like, top member. Honestly, (laughs) you should come. We have therapists that offer workshops. Like, it's great. Wow, that's so fucking cool and so needed. And it's only going to grow more from here. Like it's already thriving so much. And like now that you're, you said you're a registered nonprofit now, right? Yeah. I feel like things are only going to get bigger and better from here. So we're super excited to see like what more happens with the network. And it's a global community, right? Yeah, it's a global community. Like, I mean, so the pandemic really uh, helped us kind of get that global aspect because technically we're Canadian. We're a Canadian registered nonprofit, but... We have a ton of Americans that come to our spaces, people from the UK that come to our spaces. So we are available just for everyone. So we're right now like online. So we do have a couple more questions for you, but we wanted to dive into representation specifically. We talk about representation all the time. Like I I think at least on every episode it gets brought up um, and how important it is. Yeah, truly. Why do you think representation is so important? That is a, a fantastic question. So representation is so important because uh, taking queer South Asian represent queer South Asian women's representation, for instance, because you can know and feel that you are queer and so as a South Asian person and acknowledge, you know, come to terms with whatever parts of your identity, but that true sense of validation and like uh, having that role model, I feel like it at- unlocks a, a place of self-love and like self-acceptance that unlike you've ever seen before it's like whoa I can truly be this um and even if it's not I can truly be this it's very much like I feel seen I think that's why so many queer kids deal with mental health is because they feel like their existence is impossible but representation shows them that it is possible and that's what that's the unlocking it's literally possibility has now been unlocked for you yeah exactly and I think that's what I what I remember going on to saying is like I don't want anybody to grow up feeling like they just want to kill themselves because they don't feel seen. They don't feel, you know, I hate using the word normal, but they don't feel like they belong. It's true, like normal. Yeah, they don't feel normal because when, like, we are, we're all, like, normal. There's no such thing as, like, abnormal. Yeah, that's really why I'm so always pushing for visibility and representation because it matters, and that's how we feel safe enough to enter spaces and to be alive. If right. Mindy Kaling is out there, this is a PSA <laughs> to get Listen, queer, <laughs> in, like South Asian gals on the show. Start 
starring I'm Allie like, and Persis. Yes, exactly. I feel like we needed like a show about ourselves and like yes. being poor in South Asian. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, admittedly, I think that the Queer South Asian Women's Network, just because of the nature of my own work, is trying to get that representation of South Asians in white normative queer spaces. So I feel like that's kind of what QSAN Network kind of does, is to bring our visibility in there. To foster our inclusivity, we really need to start by having the conversations. There are, like, hetero, I'm not blaming all of the heterosexual South Asian community. Um, there are definitely wonderful heterosexual South Asian folks out there that are very great allies that are willing to learn. And they honestly are the ones that I think it's very important for them to be doing that work in educating their heterosexual peers and bringing up these conversations because it's often unsafe for us as queer people do, but more importantly, I mean, not more importantly, equally importantly, existing as a queer South Asian person, I feel like other South Asian folks will, are, that are heterosexual are likely to be like, oh, you're just preaching about this because you're gay. Like, it's not important. Like, you're just saying it because it's you. But they will right. take it more seriously when it's a fellow ally. Got it, yeah. And that person is likely at way less risk than a queer person because because they're straight, they're not as at risk of violence as a queer person would be. Of course. Educational work. I just wanted to give a really quick shout out to Persis's parents, who are two straight people who are incredible allies and constantly trying to learn more about the queer community. And I think they, I know they both listen to the pod and I think they're great examples of what you're talking about. Like they want to have these conversations and they're hard conversations and they realize that, but they're, they are more than willing to step forward and do that for their daughter and for like the entire queer community. People like that are out there, like you said, like they're out there and, and I think the more the better. And I think you're right. It's all about like conversation. Yes. Yay. Shout out to Persis' parents. Yes. Cyril and Rennie. Cyril and Rennie. Love you guys. Come on the pod. Thank you so much, Allie. This conversation has been so great, like beyond words. We're so grateful that you took the time to share all of your knowledge and your expertise and your life experience. How can our listeners keep up with you, follow you, join the network, all the things? Yes. So first of all, thank you so much for creating this wonderful, amazing space for me to be vulnerable and share my story. Um, I really appreciate it. This is great. And yes, yeah, so for folks that do want to continue to follow me, my handles are Ali Patel, A-L-Y-Y-P-A-T-E-L. I spell Ali differently, uniquely, because I right. didn't want to be special. No, I'm kidding. He's I one did. of a kind. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, so all that's my handles everywhere. Um, my Instagram is a little more educational. My TikTok is just jokes. But I, yeah, so that's TikTok and uh, on Twitter as well, Ali Patel. And QSA Network, same thing. All of our platforms, um, we're Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, QSAW Network. Amazing. Perfect. Okay, is there anything else before we say goodbye that you want to say? Um, no, I'm, I think I'm good. Just thank you so much for this wonderful space. I'm glad that this was a space where I made my book announcement too. So thank you. So exciting. We That's got the scoop purse. We got the hot goss. The hot tea. Yeah, y'all really got the hot goss for me. <laughs> In case you missed it, Persis Abraham. Did I miss it? Did you or miss it? I, or am I aware? You know what? In this, in case you missed it, I actually missed it. Um, and you didn't. Yeah. So in case I missed it, which I did, what happened recently? <laughs> <laughs> 
So I want to say, so by the time we're recording this, I think this was a last night thing. As we all know, our girl Fletch, Fletcher, the queer goddess we're in love with, all of us, is back on tour. Last night was a dream. If anything, she really did say that in her Instagram post because Lesbian Jesus, aka Haley Kiyoko, surprised Fletcher on stage. Yes, and I'm sure they sang their song, Cherry. Yes. I can't even imagine what the crowd's what the crowd's reaction would have been to that. There, there's probably, I mean, I'm sure there's videos. So if Haley's lesbian Jesus, what's Fletcher? Does Fletcher have a name? No. Oh, Fletch Daddy. Fletch Daddy. I like that. I think they call <laughs> Fletcher Fletch Daddy. So you're going to see Fletch Daddy. You are, you know, gay as hell. Yeah. And then... And then lesbian Jesus comes out. Like, I just think that must have been euphoric. That must have been a moment. We wanted to talk about this because the queer artists, they are back on tour. Music venues are opening up again. Concerts are happening. And we were just talking about this. Like, even in the beginning of the episode, Sarah said it had been so long to have that euphoric feeling of just dancing and seeing, like, a local band, even a cover band, right? Just live music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, musicians need that support more than ever. Like the entertainment industry took a hit during the pandemic. Fletcher was supposed to open for Niall, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And I could only imagine how much of like a sinking feeling that would be to have everything just shut down and closed because of the pandemic. Like I think, you know, our lives were basically on hold for a little bit. And for an artist like Fletcher who, yes, for us who are active in the queer community, we know Fletcher like the back of our hand. Me secondhand through Persis, who introduced me to her. But I don't think Fletcher is widely known yet. And for her, opening for someone as big as Niall Horan would would have been like a defining career moment to really put her into maybe like that next um, level of success that she might have been looking for. So like even though she's a, so like she's Fletch daddy to us, I think that must have been like pretty devastating for Fletcher. And I can't imagine how many other artists out there who weren't able to, you know, work on their careers for two years in like that kind of way. Because touring, I used to work in the music industry and touring is like how artists make money now because of how music is distributed. You know, we're not buying CDs, plus like brand deals and stuff like that. So anyway, touring is important is what I'm trying to say. And... Your queer artists are back out on tour. They are back out making music. They need your support. And I think in a time when there's a lot happening, y'all, and we are all feeling heavy and we are all trying to find ways to like cope, but also like support people we love, like queer art matters and it does make a difference all the time, but especially in times like these. So we just wanted to shine a light on that and remind everyone, like, go see your queer artists on tour. Go see what artists maybe you've never heard of before who are coming to play in your city. Go check them out. Engage in queer art, not even music, not even just music, but like, you know, visual arts, film, queer film. Movie theaters are back open, right? Like, let's support queer art as much as possible. Yes. Because they need, they need like, to make money. <laughs> You know what I mean? To keep making this beautiful art that helps us all understand each other better and understand ourselves. 
Yeah. And I think that like, we all know we're living in like extremely, really sad, heavy times right now. But I think music or art has always been such a way to bring people together. It's such a connector. So I think like in those dark times, like really, I go to music so much, you know, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have music, man. So listen, I want these people to keep performing and giving me that sad girl music I need for my little queer heart. Um, (laughs) You need your sad girl music. I do. You really do. (laughs) It's part of your mental health. It really is, man. It's a part of my mental health. (laughs) So if you guys have queer artists you're really loving right now that you think everyone should go see on tour, like if if they're out on a tour right now, let us know. We'll share it in our stories and just spread the word so that people can know what's happening in their city. Yes, exactly. It's like my favorite thing to talk about ever. Also, fun fact about Fletcher's tour, it was supposed to start in Vancouver. I'm going at the end of this month. In Toronto? Yeah. You are going to meet the love of your life at that show. Are you going to manifest that? It's going to yes, be gay girl, gay girl, gay girl, gay girl. Guys, guys, did you hear that? Huh? It was almost like I was malfunctioning. Like, I literally was like, gay, gay girl, gay girl, gay girl. <laughs> like, gay girl malfunction. <laughs>